Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Grant Tinsley. Grant, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Corey? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm excited for today's conversation because this is a topic that's, as you know, been around a long time. There's a lot of misinformation. People have a lot of questions. And uh, so I'm definitely excited for this conversation. But before we get there, just give the listener a brief background for yourself, where you've been, what you've done, and then what you're currently doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I started out at Oklahoma State University for my undergraduate work, and I got degrees in nutritional sciences and physiology there. Uh, I have always loved exercising since, I don't know, junior high or so, the bug bit <laughs> me. I had, a, I had a really ripped friend. I'm like, wait, how can you look like that? I started getting interested in exercise, lifting weights, all these things. So I had that as, as kind of a side hobby, but I was just studying nutrition and physiology, not exercise at that point. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I loved school. I've always loved science. So mm-hmm. I went on to Colorado State University and got a master's degree in biomedical sciences. This was a lot of advanced anatomy and physiology. We did a lot of cadaver dissection, which I loved as someone who loved to lift weights. It was amazing to see all these muscle groups, you know, I'd read about and actually be dissecting them and cutting them apart and teaching undergraduates and so on. So after that, I was, again, on the fence about what I wanted to do, but I decided to pr- pursue a PhD and actually get into the exercise realm. So I, I did my PhD at Baylor University, and I went there because I really liked their program. It was kinesiology and exercise nutrition. So I was looking for a program that integrated kind of the nutritional aspects with the exercise aspects of, of physiology that I enjoyed. So I got my PhD there. I completed that in 2016, and then got a tenure track job here at Texas Tech University. So I've been here since fall 2016. I'm now an associate professor here, and I direct my my research lab, which is the Energy Balance and Body Composition Laboratory. Along the way, I picked up some certifications. I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA, certified sports nutritionist through ISSN, and then I got a graduate certificate from Stanford in medical statistics because a lot of what I do now <laughs> yeah. shares on on data analysis. Yeah. So that's mostly that's that's mostly what I do. I do have a consulting LLC where I'll offer data analysis services and do some advising in the the dietary supplements industry. But the majority of my work here is research. I do teach uh, sports nutrition under undergraduate classes, but beyond that, most of my teaching is in our master's and PhD program, and most of my effort really is directed towards our our research lab. Gotcha. We have very similar paths. I guess the only thing that I didn't do was finish the doctorate. I I started it. But unfortunately, you know, my doctorate was so mechanistic nutrition. It didn't have anything mm. to do with exercise. So I, I did end up leaving, but I did. That's, that's pretty cool. I didn't know you had an anatomy, that kind of depth, in-depth anatomy background. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I'm honestly sad, you know, when I think about day-to-day that I don't use all that knowledge. So it ties in. We do a lot of body composition research. For sure. Certainly knowledge of anatomy helps there, as well as, you know, program design, things like that tie into anatomy. But but yeah, anatomy is one of my, my first loves in, in the yeah. whole realm of science. Very cool. And isn't it interesting, like you mentioned in your undergrad, you did nutrition and, and physiology. Mm-hmm. But you, you like mentioned that the exercise wasn't there. And it's just so, it's just like crazy. And I experienced this too, that those are so adjacent to ex-phys, but they just aren't quite ex-phys. So like when I got 
to Nebraska for my master's, I was the only person in our nutrition program that had an exercise background. And so I'm with all these dietetic students, nutrition science students, and none of them had exercise. And I'm like, really? Like, that's not even a part of your programs? And they're like, no. And I'm like, that's, that's just so crazy. And now people, I think, have really caught on to that. And so you do have more people like yourself who are both. And that's just, I think that's just good for everybody. No, I agree. And it's too bad. I think there are some programs this way, but it's too bad there aren't more standalone programs because, mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially you and I had to piece it together. So you're like, okay, a degree related to exercise, a degree <laughs> related to nutrition, you know, kind of piece it together over the course of educational career. I know there are some universities that have a kind of combined department that houses nutrition and exercise. And I get the sense there's a lot better kind of um, yeah. cross pollination there as opposed to campuses where it's like separate colleges, separate departments. There's, you know, very yeah. little, little crossover. For sure. Well, I mean, that's what drew me to Nebraska. So this would have been 2010. It was the only program, one of the only programs, if not the only program I could find that was both. It was the only program I could find that was a master's degree in, in exercise, phys and nutrition science. And then, you know, anyone who's listened to the intro episode of this knows that I was also a sports RD intern on, on Nebraska. So that was, that was, I guess I did kind of have to piece it together in that way. But yeah, for the most part, the the combined programs didn't really exist but yeah definitely becoming more prevalent so so yeah for today's episode we are going to talk about one area that you've done a decent amount of research in and that's intermittent fasting so actually i I was kind of thinking about my background in history with if and and the first surge that i was aware of was in that like kind of 2010 you know 12 range where I think there was this almost initial first surge that I was aware of in interest in intermittent fasting. And I don't know if you remember this, but I think in 2011, John Berardi released an ebook on it. I'm sure you're very familiar with this ebook that, that he, I, I recall he was like, reading it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was just one of the first, <clears throat> I don't know if mainstream, but like more legitimate scientific minds to really embrace this, look at it practically test it and then share his results. And I think that really bolstered it into a little bit more of the, the, and it put it in front of like professionals. And yeah, of course I tried it. I tried IF, you know, in grad school that that's like the bulking phase, right? Grad, grad school is when you get to train all the time and, and whatnot. But so I was definitely trying to like build muscle, gain weight, but of course, you know, I heard all of these things with IF and the benefits it might have. So I did the primarily just the one day a week, a 24 hour period of, of no calorie consumption is what I what I did. So that's, I guess, I mean, how did you get introduced to IF? Was there something that you had personally that was of interest to you or how did that start? Yeah, so it started more from the research side. So I started my PhD at Baylor in 2013, and my first doctoral advisor there was named Paula Bounty, and he had led a position stand development for the International Society of Sports Nutrition, ISSN. Mm-hmm. He led their position stand on meal frequency in 2011, and if I'm not mistaken, I think John Berardi might have actually been an author on it. I think they looped him into it because he was, like you said, certainly a visible presence there with precision nutrition, and yeah, his, his pretty well-documented experiments on himself with different forms of fasting. So at that time though, and you likely remember this as well, this is kind of when I was entering, I guess, the fitness space, but you know, for a long time, higher meal frequencies seem to be recommended for pretty much anything. Like if you want to 
if you want to gain mass, you certainly need a high meal frequency. You know, every three hours you need this large bolus of protein. You should probably drink BCAAs in between these meals also. So you don't go catabolic within those couple hours. (laughs) Additionally, like fat loss too, though, it's just like almost a blank recommendation. It's like fat loss. Oh, well, you also want frequent meals to like stoke the metabolic fire, keep your metabolism high. You want to improve your health, high meal frequency. It just seemed like high meal frequency was the answer for everything. I remember one of the first, I think, muscle and fitness magazines I saw as a high schooler, you know, there's some super Mm. jacked fitness model on the cover. And I was reading the article and they're like, what? It was an interview style article. And they said, what's the one thing that's taking your physique to the next level? And he said, well, you know, there just aren't enough hours in the day to get in all like the protein and nutrients I need. So I set an alarm for the middle of the night and I keep a big jar of peanut butter by my bed. I wake up at night and I just eat as much peanut butter as I can and then I fall back asleep. And that's what's taking my physique to the next level, which is laughable on a number a number of fronts. We will get started on like peanut butter as a, a protein source for or sure. anything of that nature. But, you know, just this this perception that's like you need to be eating all the time and sleep is inconvenient because you can't be eating and so on. Anyways, this position stand that, that Paula Bounty and colleagues led, some of the conclusions that came out of that, albeit, you know, there was limited research in active individuals, but some of the conclusions were there's not a clear benefit of a higher meal frequency versus what we call like a normal meal frequency, say, you know, like three to four eating occasions per day. So that's kind of where where I came in at that point was in that post position stand. He'd been working on that. He was interested in fasting. We had lots of discussions here because we were kind of swinging to the other end of the spectrum. We're like, okay, if higher is not better, talked about normal. Now, you know, there's all this murmuring about, you know, fasting related programs, looking at kind of the other end of the spectrum where you know, either on a daily or maybe weekly basis, you're reducing meal frequency, which again, is kind of flying in the face of a lot of the the popular recommendations in the fitness realm. Yeah. So that's really when I got interested in it. At that point, there was some research on intermittent fasting. Most of it at that point was in individuals with obesity and who were sedentary. And I would say most of the interventions at that point were alternate day fasting, which it has a lot of research. I'd say currently time-restricted eating, which we can talk about the, the differences between these forms is much more popular, both in practice and even in the research realm. Uh, But at that point, yeah, again, a lot of the research was alternate day fasting, which was kind of an extension of what you talked about, that 24-hour fast Mm -hmm. once a week, alternate day fasting originally was just like it sounds. It's like if you eat Monday, you don't eat Tuesday. Then you eat Wednesday, you don't eat Thursday. And those fasts were very long. They were about 36 hours because you essentially ate Monday, had your overnight fast Monday to Tuesday, didn't eat all of Tuesday, didn't eat overnight Tuesday to Wednesday. So you ended up with about a 36 hour fast. Hmm. And, you know, of course, if you're, if you're fasting like that several days a week, it can certainly cause a calorie deficit and weight loss. So that was seen in some of these early human trials in say the mid, you know, 2000s up to 2010. And so, Mm -hmm. however, there was some one difficulty adhering, as you can imagine, ratings of hunger were very high. Sounds terrible. It it does sound (laughs) terrible. There was also some concern about lean mass loss. And we know, you know, anytime... Most times, someone is losing a substantial amount of weight, they'll lose some so-called lean mass. Yeah. Some of that could be from skeletal muscle. Some could be organ size, a variety of things. But a way they tried to combat that was kind of evolving alternate day fasting into kind of a modified form of fasting where instead of completely fasting on those in-between days, you'd be allowed one meal. So that kind of came out of, interestingly, out of the, the realm of preserving lean mass. So that was kind of the current most popular, that modified hmm. alternate day fasting when, when I sort of entered the conversation. Yeah. But again, there were no, um, no trials in exercised individuals, exercise trained individuals. There's one or two trials where they added in exercise. But again, this was in the context of, you know, patients with obesity who were previously sedentary. Yeah. yeah. So how, uh, like on average, how long were these alternate day fasting trials? 
the standard length was about eight weeks. There were some that were shorter. They've, they've since done longer trials that were like a year long. Wow. Uh, which which did show, you know, some difficulty in adhering. Definitely relative to their, their participant dropout rates like crazy yeah. in those. It was, I mean, it was higher than the groups that were also consuming a reduced calorie diet, but allowed yeah. to eat normally. Yeah. When they did the yeah. year long trial, that was one of the yeah. things that kind of showed up. Yeah. Because they're like, at some point, no amount of participant compensation is going to make up for not being able to eat every other day for yeah. that long. That's that's crazy. So how about animal data? Was some of the really, really original interest in this from, from animal data? Like, if I remember right, I think a lot of this kind of, did it kind of come out of the caloric restriction, increased longevity animal data? Or what was the connection there? Yeah, there's definitely a tie in there. And, you know, I'm not, I haven't done rodent research since my undergraduate years, <laughs> but there, there is a one really important point here. And this has emerged, you know, over the last decade or more where there's increased realization that lots of the historic caloric restriction research in animals um, was actually imposing fasting. So the mm -hmm. way they were restricting calories was limiting the time the animals had access to food. And at the time, there wasn't this awareness that you know, these periods of fasting and feeding might be exerting unique physiological effects, especially in rodents with their high metabolism. If you're depriving them of food, say for 16 or 20 hours in a 24 hour period, that's much, that's a much longer period relative to their metabolism than it is for us. That might be like a several oh, day fast. Yeah. So they're in, introducing or causing this kind of unique physiological state when really all they were trying to do is reduce calorie intake. So there, there have hmm. been some good review articles and kind of syntheses of research describing this phenomenon where they're like, you know, lots of these say benefits for longevity or disease risk reduction in rodents that we attributed solely to caloric restriction might actually be due to, to be due to fasting. So since then they've teased this out, the rodent researchers looking at like the fasting in and of itself yeah. versus caloric restriction, but food allowed over, you know, prolonged period of time each day. So there is, there is certainly a tie in there. Like most things, you know, some of the early mechanistic work was in rodents now that this has been popular for, you know, well over a decade in the human clinical trial realm, we do have quite a bit of data in humans, though okay. there's certainly some, some unanswered questions still. For sure. So let's get into some of the supposed unique benefits to IF. Because like, obviously, it's a way to, to reduce caloric intake. But I mean, if that's all it was, I, I probably wouldn't have really taken off as much. But I think you know, again, back in like the 2010s era where that was the first surge, there were like some unique ties to if you do it this way, if you do, if you restrict calories by IF and go for these extended periods without food, not just, you know, lower calories and still eating frequently, you're going to get better results because of certain mechanisms. So what, what are the proposed benefits here of intermittent fasting or that have been linked to intermittent fasting? Yeah. So I'd say conceptually, the sort of big picture idea is that these periods of fasting exert some mild stress on your body physiologically that would allow you to be better able to respond to greater stressors in the future. And this idea is called hormesis, that we have hmm. like a small stressor that makes us stronger, sort of what doesn't kill you, make you stronger, but maybe it's just extreme but makes yeah, you stronger, right. better able to handle physiological stress in the future. So again, that's the idea that the nutrient deprivation itself causes changes in, say, cellular energy metabolism, 
that will make you better able to handle stress, which could, you know, theoretically lead to increased resilience, disease resistance, and, and so on. Again, lots of this came out of the rodent literature where they saw some very, you know, in some cases, profound physiological benefits, even once they realized that we have to kind of tease out the fasting from the calorie restriction mm. in terms of how we're administering these interventions. But again, you, there are, you know, studies showing, you know, very impressive physiological benefits of what seem like reasonable lengths of fasting in rodents. Again, say they're fasting for mm. 16 or 20 hours a day, but that doesn't necessarily translate to, to the human studies. So yeah, in rodents, one, for example, it's not a one-to-one ratio there. Yes. So some of these yeah. physiological changes that, that could, you know, improve physiological resilience in some ways might not apply to the way almost anyone is, hmm. is performing fasting. It was interesting to me, you mentioned the 24-hour fast, because that's actually longer than most people do. Many people as kind of a standard fasting this day would be doing time-restricted eating where they're eating all their calories in about yeah. eight-hour period of time, fasting for 16 hours. From the data we have in humans, so if you are stopping your fast at 16 hours, you're probably stopping short of where some of the physiological changes acutely, like at a, a single period of time, sure. start to happen. Those are often up more in the like 20 plus hour range. Some of these relate to things like increased ketone production. Uh, yeah. There's this kind of tie in with some people pairing the ketogenic diet with fasting. Fasting is ketogenic in a way because you know, the longer you, you are not taking in nutrients, the more reliant on stored body fat you will be just to, you know, for normal energy utilization. If that continues on long enough, a byproduct of that is increased ketone body production. And we've seen that runs, but again, where most people are stopping their fast, they're not at the point yet where they're seeing an increase in ketone bodies unless they are also pairing fasting with, say, a ketogenic or very low carbohydrate diet during their, their eating periods. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit of a tangent, but that's to demonstrate that some of these tie-ins on the physiological side where we think there might be a unique benefit are really resulting from longer duration fasts and kind of seeing that in rodents, but then trying to think we're going to get that same benefit from what is relatively a much shorter fast in humans. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that you make because, you know, physiologically, if you get really deep into a, to a time period of no caloric intake, you're, you're ramping up fatty acid release from adipose tissue, you're ramping up fatty acid oxidation, you know, we know that will ultimately result in ketone body production and elevation, especially as we decrease liver glycogen. Yeah, you, you wouldn't really get there if it's just a 16-hour fast, you know. So I guess from, from like my, my mindset and my perspective, it makes sense that maybe the 24-hour fast would have a little bit different effects. Now, one thing that I've always kind of wondered about this is, or maybe you know, one of the reasons someone might do IF is to somewhat like, quote unquote, reprogram your body to be more efficient at burning fat. Is that something you've seen tied to IF or is that something that happens? Because some of the other thought there is that, well, yes, you might become more efficient as a fat oxidizer or burner, but then you lose the end of the spectrum where you're good at, at utilizing carbohydrates. And then we're getting into metabolic flexibility. And then you're, are you, you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing when if you want to ramp up your fatty acid oxidation. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say for the human studies I'm aware of, which again, there have been a good number. I have not seen consistent differences. And, and here we're looking at relatively applied measured 
apply measures. So like indirect calorimetry measures, if we're looking at something like a respiratory quotient and looking at the relative oxidation of you know, fat and carbohydrate at rest. There have been a number of trials that have looked at, say, resting metabolic rate and again, substrate oxidation that balance prior to a fasting intervention and after a fasting intervention. I'll say for all the studies where they were matching calorie intake, you know, so some individuals were eating at a normal frequency, but reduced calories. Other individuals were getting that calorie reduction from the fasting program. I can't think of any cases off the top of my head where there was a like profound differential effect in substrate oxidation as a result hmm. of fasting. Now, there's some cases where there might be changes in both as a result of the overall calorie restriction and like subsequent weight loss. But in general, no clear differences based on how you got there, whether it's from fasting or normal hmm. caloric restriction, either for the, the metabolic resting metabolic rate itself yeah. or respiratory quotient. And there might be isolated exceptions, but I'd be fairly comfortable saying that the majority of the literature would not show you know, unique changes in substrate oxidation if it's measured after the standard period of time. So like, of course, at beginning and end of the intervention, they're they're Mm -hmm. just measuring after an overnight fast. If you track someone throughout the course of their acute fast, you would see some changes. This is a tangent. It's interesting. Some people can have an increase in metabolic rate potentially because this mild stress response as they continue deeper into a fast. Others that will drop off and you can see variable changes in respiratory quotient as well. So like how much people shift towards fat oxidation versus carbohydrate. But at the group level, from what I've seen in humans with the type of fasting programs people actually do, I've not seen any, you know, profound differences in in carbohydrate or fat preference. Yeah, but the fact that you bring up the individual variants is like, that's really important that it gets lost in research so much. You know, everyone's looking at the group. What is, what is the average or what is, you know, the, what is the overall results when just looking at the group? But, you know, this is something that, you know, I've heard Mike T talk, Mike T Nelson talk about. I'm sure you've heard him talk about just like, even, even without IF, we have individual variances in respiratory quotient from person to person. And we know we can affect this through the diet, through exercise, things like that. But I feel like that would help, it might help explain why some people love IF, do really, really well on it and swear by it. And maybe some people don't. Would you agree with that? Or I guess, what have you seen as, a, as regard to individual responses? Yeah, so I would agree on, on a physiological side, it's, it is harder to say. I don't know for sure if the physiological individual responses how strong that correlation is with someone's like subjective or behavioral okay, responses. Yeah. It might be, I just, it's not something I've looked at, but I am very confident from talking to our hundreds of research participants in these studies and talking to plenty of people who use fasting that there's substantial individual variability in how well people can tolerate these hmm. programs, how much they enjoy it, how effective they feel like they are. I will say kind of tying in back to the idea of the surge in popularity from my perspective, I think it turns out most people don't like to be told what to eat and not to eat. And so many <laughs> diets are, you know, emphasizing low carbohydrate. We're eliminating lots of foods we like, or low fat, we're eliminating lots of foods we like. I think one reason IF got popular and has remained popular is it's not inherently messing with the nutrients you eat. I think for mm-hmm. most people, it's a little bit easier to say like, okay, eat the types of foods you like, eat within this period of time. That might cause you to eat less, but I'm not telling you you can't eat, you know, these you can't eat pasta and like bread and carbohydrate right. containing foods or saying you can't have your like guacamole, guacamole well, I pronounced that very strangely, guacamole <laughs> and ground beef and steak and all these things. So sure. But yeah, on the behavioral side, I would say there are people who come into the our studies and they've 
you know, consume breakfast every day in their life. They're like very nervous about going on a pretty, you know, mild fasting program. Um, sometimes I would say the period of adaptation, both from the research what we've seen is often about two weeks. So about two weeks is challenging. Okay. And then most people don't have trouble complying to the point where they're dropping out. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty much used to it. Uh, with that said, by the end of our eight weeks or so, it feels like it's about 50-50, not running data on hmm. it, just kind of like informal activities yeah. where some people are like, you know, this is actually great. I'm really used to it. It's convenient to be able to like not worry about breakfast and eat a later lunch and, you know, not eat at night. You know, it's just convenient for me. Other people are like, you know, I, I got through it and it wasn't too bad, but I'm going to eat breakfast every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't want to ever do this again. So yeah, I completely agree that you have some camps are between, they could take it or leave it, but some they're like, this is it for me. This is the program falling forever. This helps me maintain weight or lose weight or whatever. And then other people are just like, this is not it for me. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a really interesting, you know, balance or I guess kind of paradox because on one hand, IF is extremely restrictive. You cannot eat for this period of time, like no calorie consumption. However, if you're doing a time-restricted feeding, which again is like the, the 16 hours fasting, eight hour window where you can eat food, a lot of protocols, it's like, that's kind of ad libitum. You can eat whatever you want. You know, don't worry so much about like caloric density or even macro goals maybe. And that part is not restrictive. It's just like, I've got this very clear time frame where like you said, people don't necessarily like to be told to like change the way they eat. So this is a way it's almost like trying to get the best of both worlds or you're, you're getting the best of both worlds where it's very clear what you need to do, but you don't have to change your food preferences. And as a result of the, of the fasting, you naturally have decreased caloric intake without tracking, without counting. I think like those things make it a lot easier to follow in some regard, even though on one end it's very restrictive. And, and psychologically, you know, when I was doing the 24-hour fast once, once a week, I'll be honest, I was very relieved some days to not have to worry about food prep and honestly in a mass gaining phase, forcing myself to eat. Like if you really wanted to gain weight and put on muscle, like there's definitely times I was, wasn't hungry or like the, the, you know, going back to the, the frequent eating that three hour time frame of eating every three hours. And I would see like, oh gosh, it's three hours. I got to eat again. Yep. And I'd like on, on Sundays, which was the day I would fast, I'd like, oh, sweet. I don't have to worry about it. I'm just going to drink, you know, sip on my coffee or sip on my tea throughout the day. And uh, it was just a nice mental break. And you know what? And I, I would be interested to see if you got this from any of your participants or any people you've talked to. You know, there are times where I just felt like my digestive system needed a little bit of a break, especially if when I was just really, you know, going on uh, and building muscle. Did you get any responses to that where like people kind of felt like there was almost, I don't know, I don't, I hate to use the word like a reset for their, their digestive yeah. system. Did you get any feedback on that? Yeah. So it's funny because people, people do really commonly report that. And I'd say some in our research studies, we didn't have like structured interviews to get at that specifically, yeah. but often individuals I talk to, that's one benefit they cite. And I've, I've experienced that as well, where if you are eating a large number of calories a day, there's something nice. And depending on how, you know, some people have like great digestive systems and zero issues ever. Um, but <laughs> yeah. for some people that, that frequent eating, the amount of eating really can upset their stomach or they're always feeling bloated. 
And in some ways, I'd say at least in terms of subjective responses, and it makes sense. We know this. If you have less content in your GI tract, that will be sensed in different ways by you subjectively and you know, physiologically by your body. So I don't know to what extent that carries out into true physiological changes where it's like, oh, we've, we've truly physiologically reset our gut. But I'd say certainly yeah. in terms of the feelings of fullness and bloating or abdominal distension, things like that, people seem to commonly report that as a, as a benefit uh, for them of fasting, just subjectively something they enjoy not, not feeling that way yeah. all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let, let's talk about your, the research you have done for a little bit. I mean, you've alluded to it a little bit already. But as best you can, I guess, what types of research have you done specifically in your lab on IF and you know, what types of protocols have you been doing? And then we can get into maybe some of the things that you that you've found along the way. Yeah, so I'll, I guess I'll pick up the, the story where we left it, where you know, I come in at Baylor, there'd been this both rodent fasting research, human mm-hmm. research, largely in, in sedentary individuals with Obesity, my advisor and I kind of had the shared interest in fasting. I've always preferred weight training as a modality of exercise. We've done, you know, a token trial in cyclists, which I can talk about. But starting there, and most of our trials since have involved like weight training as our intervention. But essentially, I was interested in conducting a trial of intermittent fasting paired with resistance training. So structured resistance training. Our first trial was in recreationally trained individuals. Since then, we've uh, crossed the how many, half a dozen, six, seven studies or so we've done. Training status has ranged from untrained up to, uh, to highly trained individuals in a study I collaborated on, on Italy in Italy where they essentially identified as natural bodybuilders. So very hmm. substantial training individuals yeah. who were lean to begin with, who are muscular to begin with and so on. So we've kind of gone the full spectrum there, tested males and females, varying training statuses. For that first study, we employed a little bit of a different type of fasting program. So we were more interested in time-restricted eating. We didn't feel like alternate day fasting had great applications for active individuals. You could do it, but again, it's very difficult to, to not eat on certain days or just eat one meal certain days. And so we did employ something that was employ something that was a little bit cyclical. Essentially on three training days each week, we had individuals eat normally. And our rationale yeah. here was we wanted them to essentially follow uh, best practices for pre and post exercise nutrition, which you know include eating pre and post exercise <laughs> yep. at some point. But then on their rest days, the four rest days, we had them actually do a 20 hour fast and just eat in a four hour period of time, which was typically from late afternoon till mid evening. So often like four to 8 p.m. Yeah. So the idea was kind of instead of doing the 16 hour fast daily, we were getting kind of to a similar place in, in terms of the total duration of fasting, but just applied a little bit differently. Gotcha. So that study, it was really a side passion project. I didn't know. It was one of my early trials I, I had done. It was, we had very, there was no funding. There was very limited personal support. It was like me and my, my friends who are graduate students running this study. So, <laughs> you know, certainly in hindsight, there's some limitations, but we got, we had some interesting results come out of it. And some of it was that when people are on a program like that, if you're not intentionally supplementing them with protein, they will consume protein that's not adequate to like maximally support resistance training adaptations. So I think they ended up, and, and we were not meddling in this. We were just, you know, recording what they consumed based off dietary records, which have limitations. Sure. But we weren't yeah. influencing it anyway. They ended up consuming, I think it was about 1.1 grams per kilogram of body mass protein. So higher than the RDA, but not where we would like to see it. The group that was unrestricted, I think they were up around 1.4, 1.5 grams per kilogram, which is getting closer to where we normally want, which would be like 1.6 plus, sure. uh, which we, we did implement in future studies. So that was interesting to see. We saw it. 
maintenance of lean mass in the time-restricted eating group, but actually a couple of kilogram increase in the group that was unrestricted. Hmm. So they were consuming more protein. They were not restricted on their energy intake, and they essentially had a little bit better responses on lean mass. In terms of performance, there were you know, identical performance improvements in, in both groups. So it was very preliminary. It used a little bit of a different form of fasting, but that was kind of the first trial I conducted in this area. And even though it was a basic study, I think there were so many people interested in this. They got a lot of traction. I'd actually ended up winning the best paper of the year award at the journal we published it in, which is the European Journal of Sports Science. And over that Very study, cool. because that study, I was able to connect with a great researcher in Italy who's Antonio Paoli. He's done a lot of work in the ketogenic diet over the years, but in the last several years, has done a lot of work with time-restricted eating. And I was able to collaborate hmm. with them on a study they were conducting in Italy in these high-level trained uh, male, male, essentially natural bodybuilders. And those results were even more popular, and I guess, polarizing because they looked at a lot more physiological markers than we did. And there were kind of okay. positive <laughs> and negative results. So for example, they saw a, and this was with a, a time-restricted eating program for eight weeks. This was kind of the standard 16 hours of fasting, eight okay. hours of feeding each day. Yep. They had dietitian involvement. So the, the meal frequency was the same in both groups as three meals a day plus whey protein after exercise. Yeah, I should say as a side note, all the studies we've conducted have, even when they are fasting on training days, we've had all participants train in the fed state. So we've not employed okay. fasted training. We've had them train yep. in the afternoon. I will say just because I have a, a small amount of knowledge of the study from, from work with Andy. Andy Galpin right now has finished a study and working, we're working through the data analysis for a study where there's time-restricted eating with actual training in the fasted state. So it will kind of okay. answer a different question than what we've looked at um, so far. But back to the study. Sure. In Italy, this was this was interesting because we saw we saw fat loss in the time restricted eating group, even though the groups were prescribed the same calories. And of course, you know, there are limitations when humans are free living. We can't put them in a cage and just like slide their tray in like we can with rodents. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but we still we had good dietitian involvement, good dietary records, and on paper at least, they they ate the you know same diet, uh, just yep. structured differently. But there was a small amount of fat loss in these already lean individuals. I think. I think starting out their average body fat index, it was something like 13%. So okay. lean to start with, muscular yeah, to start lean. with. Yeah. Yes. It, but some of the health markers are interesting. So we saw some kind of unique, I guess, benefits on some health markers related to disease risk reduction, say like blood lipids and so on. But we also saw a decrease in testosterone in the individuals following time-restricted eating. So there was kind mm-hmm. of ammunition on both sides when the study came out. If you hated IF, you're like, oh, look, this like decreases your testosterone. Oh, uh, if man. you love diet, you're like, oh, look, they yeah. lost fat, even though they're eating the same number of calories or were prescribed the same number of calories. So that was kind of an interesting study. Those participants, this is more recent, but those participants could actually opt in to continue for a whole year. So this was eight weeks. They could continue for another 10 months. Okay. And we published that follow-up work as well in medicine and science and sports and exercise. What was interesting is we still saw that drop in testosterone after the year. And at that point, after a year, this wasn't seen after eight weeks, we did actually see a small reduction in lean mass. However, we also saw the maintenance of fat loss. So it's kind of a trade-off. It's like, okay, would you trade, hmm. would you get some fat loss in someone that's already relatively lean, trade yeah. that for like a little bit of lean mass loss, you still have mm-hmm. lower testosterone, but you, it's not, it's not dramatic. They're not, you know, in a hypogonadal range or anything. Yeah. And the performance changes are still the same. So to us, that year-long data really showed kind of some of the long-term trade-offs. And for some people, they're like, yeah, this is an acceptable trade for me. For other people, they're like, no, I don't want to risk like an ounce of lean mass loss. So I'm not, not going to do something like that. So I'll pause there. I can go into some of our other studies, but I'll pause there in case you have any, any yeah. follow-up. Yeah, because yeah, my, you answered my one question I had already, which was, does was the drop in testosterone meaningful? You know, like we know yeah. that we can have 
changes in these, you know, in testosterone or something like that, but the, the range is massive or even how people respond at different levels is, is, is highly variable. So throughout the, the, the people who continued the extra, you know, eight months, were they just training wise instructed to just maintain normal training or how was that addressed? Yeah. So they had for the eight weeks, we, the training had been prescribed. Yep. I would have to, honestly, I would have to double check the the details on that component because okay. it, it's been a while. It's been a it's few been years a since we published it. So I have to look yeah. back at how we phrased it. I know they, they have been on the program that was administered within like select gyms where this was, where recruitment happened. They've been on that. And honestly, I can't recall off the top of my head if they had to continue on that same structure program or if they were able to kind of resume normal, normal training practices. Gotcha. I, I, in general, do you remember, I don't know if you, if you've measured this at all or, or tracked it, but did they, did they mention or experience any decrements in performance over time or how did they feel with training or is it something that they just got so used to, it just became normal? Yeah. So I'd say that's probably an area where I guess our research moving forward could improve is would be getting more subjective responses. So we, yeah. we might have, you know, like simple scales of like how difficult is this to adhere to and so on, mm-hmm. but we probably could benefit from like a well-developed, very structured interview to get like as much information as we yeah. can. These individuals from most of the studies that I've run personally have been more in the, the eight week range here. Yeah. And again, certainly over that, that duration of time, it's, it's fairly polarizing. Most people can adhere. We've only had a few in each study drop out and say like, this is because of the fasting intervention. But then coming out of the study, again, we have mixed results. Some people are like, I, I'm so glad I learned I can do this. I love this. I'm going to continue. And other people yeah. where they're like, yeah, this is cool. I'm glad I did the yeah. study or not. And I'm, I'm yep. done with it for the rest of my life. For sure. So how, how did then did this impact the future work you did? And then did you kind of continue seeing similar trends or yeah, where did you go kind of after that study? Yeah, so th- there are a few other studies. Some, and I, you know, I acknowledge the the collaborators in Italy. There are other collaborators here, here domestically. Formerly at, at Kennesaw State University, Trisha Van Dusseldorp and Matthew Stratton, who actually came and did his PhD with me and is now at South Alabama. His thesis project, which I was an external a member of his committee, was conducted in this this area. The one other study I could highlight here, because it's unique in that we used resistance trained females, where up to this point, kind of in our story, most of the studies had used. Males, we conducted yeah. a study here in this building at Texas Tech where I'm sitting now in resistance trained females. This was sort of replicating the study in Italy where we used the 16 hour daily fast, eight hour feeding window. We supervised all their training. It was a, it was a lot of you know, counting sets and reps and prescribing. We had great student trainers involved in yep. this, um, you know, gave out lots of food scales for a dietary record, did all kinds of testing on body composition, muscle performance, did blood draws for basic health markers and so on. So it was a big study. This this study was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in, in 2019. So out of that study, I'd say it's one of the, it definitely improved methodologically on the early work I'd done it yeah. at Baylor before, before I don't know, before I knew this much. Right. Uh, and in this study, we saw some interesting things. So we we had a better body composition model, a, a four compartment model. So we're looking at the body just, just more comprehensively. Yeah. We essentially saw identical increases in fat-free mass of like say two to 3% across groups. So in the in the control group, individuals were required to eat breakfast and they consumed all their calories over about a 15 hour period of time each day. The time restricted eating groups, there were there were two which for our purposes were, you know, identical. They they consumed all their calories in about a seven and a half hour period of time. The only difference between those two groups, one was actually consuming supplemental HMB during the fasting periods because of a potential anti catabolic effect, which we can get into if you want. But 
a big picture of the two TRE time-restricted eating groups had the same increases in fat-free mass as the control group. All of them had similar increases in muscle thickness. So we'd use ultrasound to look at thickness of actual muscle groups. So the elbow flexors yeah. in the upper body and the knee extensors in the lower body. Performance increased similarly in all groups. We did see some fat loss benefit depending on the version of the analysis. Um, we, we did kind of a full, what would be you know, normal statistical analysis for clinical yep. trial where we analyzed the data both with everyone who was randomized, regardless of whether or not they dropped out, just called it intention to treat analysis or per protocol analysis. And those are essentially only the individuals that adhered. Gotcha. So there are people on both sides of this. Some people just say like, I want to know the effects if someone actually follows the program. Yeah. Why would I care about someone who didn't adhere? <laughs> right. But in terms of like clinical trial type stats, it's often common to use that intention to treat where it's like, okay, even if someone didn't adhere, even if they dropped out, their, their data is ultimately included to the gotcha. extent you have their data. Gotcha. So essentially in those who did adhere, we saw a fat loss benefit of time-restricted eating. So again, proponents of time-restricted eating could take that and say like, okay, if you follow it, then there's a benefit there while you're also increasing fat-free mass and improving muscle performance. So overall, I'd say I put that in, I guess, more positive realm for time-restricted eating, but it wasn't, we weren't seeing anything crazy like saying like, oh, you're going to increase your maximum strength more if you're fasting or, or anything like that. Yeah. But potentially positive results. And this was in the context of all individuals consuming at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of protein. They were very close to energy balance. So like body mass didn't change at all in the time-restricted eating group. They just yeah. had that small fat loss and fat-free mass gain. Let's see other details there. Yeah, we provided them a supplemental protein. One kind of interesting time with meal frequency is even in the time-restricted eating group, the average meal frequency was about four meals a day. So they're yeah. eating over the course of eight hours. One of these is like post-exercise protein, but they're still getting in three meals in that that eating period. It's just pushed yep. together a little bit. So some people think time-restricted eating is synonymous with like, you know, only eating like once or twice a day or something very extreme. And there mm. are those protocols, but this could be a reasonable meal frequency. You know, sports yeah. nutrition guidelines wouldn't necessarily turn up their nose at a meal frequency of like four eating occasions per day. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll pause there again yeah. to, to see what discussion you want so to have. One question I have is when you when you mentioned uh, you know performance indicators, what what were you looking at? Were, you, were these like one rep max bench squat or what types of performance indicators were you looking at? Yeah, so we looked at a variety here. We did look at one rep max and repetitions to failure as a muscular endurance test on a like hip sled leg press, which we use mostly Ooh. just for even though yeah, there is a train for safety reasons on the oh, yeah. squats reps to failure, you can get dicey on people's form. We did that with bench press as well. We have a mechanical squat device we used. So we did both isokinetic testing on the device where on the actual multi-joint squat exercise, we could look at their concentric and eccentric force production when the speed's controlled. It's a really difficult test. Also isometric force production. So we would set them at different knee angles and have them push as hard and fast as possible. Look at their like peak force there and rate of force development. We also did some vertical jump testing on force platforms in collaboration with our cloud mechanists down the hall. So we try to be pretty comprehensive on the testing just to, you know, get a little bit more, more data than, you know, just yeah. a one RM or something a, like that. That's all. That's a great, that's a very cool study. That is very comprehensive. Thank you. Because yeah, it's like, yeah, some people it's just like bench squat or bench leg press or something like that. But you, yeah, you looked at a lot of, and, and I would say like from a, you know, a strength conditioning perspective, like performance i i do think like vertical jump are you measuring power output are you using force plates that kind of thing that that's pretty cool so so just so before i do have like kind of a i kind of finishing off like question as we as we kind of wrap up but now with the the, the, the trials you've described with the other trials you've done and 
work that you know that's been done since does all this kind of jive like does the does mm-hmm. the research essentially show the same trends or how how like what do we i guess from a take home perspective what do we yeah. know here with regards to time restricted feeding or IF and performance body comp or general health yes no great question so i'd summarize our trials and others in a few statements so one this isn't true in all individuals, but for most individuals, if you put them on a time-restricted eating program with a eating duration each day of eight hours or shorter, typically that induces a small to moderate energy deficit relative to what they did prior to the trial. Of course, there's exceptions. There's some people who already skip breakfast. Maybe they're already eating an eight-hour period of time. If you put them on eight-hour time-restricted eating, not changing anything. So there are exceptions, but in general... <laughs> Even when this is ad libitum, we're not we're not specifically manipulating what they're consuming. Shortening that window can in, introduce an energy deficit that can cause body mass loss. We've seen that in athletes. This is from several like endurance training trials as well. Mm. On the resistance training side, I'd say if protein is adequate, and I would define that here as for resistance training individuals, say 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass or higher, and you are following progressive, well structured resistance training program. You can see equivalent improvements in muscle performance, fat-free mass, and muscle thickness if you are following a time-restricted eating program with as short of an eating window as about of about seven and a half hours as compared to a much longer eating window of about 15 hours. So I guess I'd summarize all that to say in active individuals, and I'm not necessarily talking about high-performance athletes, right. I'd say in, in train, exercise-trained individuals, intermittent fasting, specifically time-restricted eating, would be a viable option but not inherently superior to achieving those same yeah. nutritional intakes from another method. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my general like understanding. And also just, I've listened to you in the past of just other, other podcasts and whatnot you've been on. So the, when listening to you talk about the study in, in the female athletes, the, the thing that I think, you know, obviously IF can be, beneficial it, it can produce results but listening to you talk about all the variables you controlled there are so many ways it can go off the rails like in your studies you're trying to make sure they're getting adequate calories you're measuring protein you're trying to make sure they're getting enough protein the training they're doing is structured supervised progressive and i'm thinking about i used to be a like a, a large group boot camp instructor and so like all the things we're doing are hit based high intensity interval training or yeah, very glycolytic type exercise where that if you are, uh, if, if glycogen is compromised or if you are training fasted, that ain't good. Like it's not a good recipe for performance and it's not good long term. It's like not sustainable. So that's just, I guess, where my mind goes. I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's so many ways this could go off the rails. Like if you're not getting adequate calories in your feeding window, if you're not getting enough protein, if you aren't even doing the right type of training, you know, if you are a CrossFitter or if you are a bodybuilder, like you, that, that is a carbohydrate dominant uh, sports that like when you were actually doing the training, you need the carbohydrates, you need the carb availability, which is fine. If like you, like in, the, in some of the studies you mentioned, you are eating on those days. Like it's, it's more going to be okay. But if you go into that fasted or if like you're just not really dialed in on your intake, 
to me, that could be a recipe for disaster, you know? Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And, <laughs> you know, as you, as you mentioned there, in all of our studies, people have been fed. In many cases, that was a single meal. So they break their fast midday, come in a couple hours later and train. So certainly we weren't micromanaging the composition of that first meal of the day, but that certainly could impact things. Liver glycogen is depleted much more quickly. So as you go to an overnight fast, you can start to have some depletion at that point. As you continue, you can certainly, you know, more fully deplete liver glycogen. Muscle glycogen, not as much from fasting per se, but still certainly like the nutritional intake, carbohydrate yeah. availability, all that would, would definitely matter. So I would say if someone's in a situation, even if they're training fed, trying to follow kind of best you know, practices for sports nutrition. Yeah, being, you know, particularly aware of the content of say that that first meal of the day, if you're gonna have like one meal, then train, that would be important. And again, once the data are publicly available from Andy Galpin study in this area, they'll be informative because you'll be able to compare all the studies we've done where <laughs> they were fasting yeah. in general, like as a program, but training fed to a similar fasting program, but training in the fasted state. So I think that will help tease out some of these questions you're kind of or issues yeah. you're getting at here yeah yeah i'm just yeah i'm just also just thinking practically of just the average person who's maybe heard yeah. about this or wants to try it and and like yes we obviously know like it's viable or i i had wrestlers asking me about this a lot mm -hmm. and yeah i just was so hesitant because like i knew my experience with it i knew it worked for me i could do it but like you know people like me and you or, or people who are really into exercise fitness for their entire life mm -hmm. like we, we we pay attention to these things and man i just was not comfortable having a, like my wrestlers who can be yeah. so all over the place when it comes to you know restricting binging all that kind of stuff i just wasn't ever comfortable saying like yes i you you know try it or not try it i just kind of took the stance of you know it's, it's probably not the best thing for you to to do so one thing that i noticed just anecdotally as I, you know, knew about IF and just kind of looked at just the world in general, because obviously for the average person, they're using this to, to lose weight. You know, some people in the performance realm are looking for that body comp, like shifting of lean mass gain and fat loss at the same time. But a lot of people now, like they're using it for weight loss. And so I used to, uh, you know, my summer job used to be, I used to like work in a factory, you know, in, in, in school and, and in grad school. And I just like noticed, you know, obviously most people around me are, are overweight, they, you know, they're or, or obese and they, but I would pay attention to their eating patterns and like almost none of them would eat anything throughout the day. Nothing, not, not for like morning break, not for lunch, not for, you know, maybe, maybe lunch, but then not afternoon break. But I'm like, oh my gosh, like here I am and I'm like bringing the, the, the medium family sized <laughs> cooler to work and getting like made fun of for it and all my coworkers are again overweight or obese and they're literally eating nothing throughout the day and i'm just thinking how what's going on here like if is this thing that so many people think or go to for weight loss but everyone around me is already doing it so yeah, they're <laughs> they're either like the consumption calorically at, in the evening is just absolutely insane I, that was just something that I was like, all right, I, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, I know that IF can work, yet everyone around me is doing it and they're all overweight. So I don't know. That's just something I noticed yeah. over time. No, so, I mean, I'll give one comment there because we did, we did an acute study with multiple 24-hour fasts. And this was kind of a side component, but some of the most interesting results that came out of it was 
this 24-hour fast, so from, say, like dinner time one day to dinner time the next day. So they would be breaking their fast in the evening at the end of their 24-hour fast. So they essentially go home, consume like um, one meal. And we had individuals track what they what they consumed after 24-hour yeah. fast. And it was kind of crazy. So after a 24-hour fast, there were some individuals who had pretty suppressed hunger. We had some individuals who consumed less than 10% of their weight maintenance calories in that evening meal after the 24-hour fast. We had others who would consume over 100% of their weight maintenance calories in that single meal. And I think that does speak to something in the realm, not to get into it you know, like clinically as a condition, but in the realm of, of binge eating and how you compensate. Mm. Some people after this fasting, whether it's rewarding themselves, whether they're just extra hungry, there are some differences in food cravings, like craving higher fat items, very palatable items, and so on. After that 24-hour fast, you're not wanting like a big, nice, salt, dry salad. salad. You know, you want to eat a whole little Caesar's pizza. So (laughs) I would say, I would guess for your coworkers, I don't know. Yeah. But I would guess some of them were dramatically overeating. And then even, and we know this from weekend days, there can be individuals who are like kind of Mm. on program, so to speak, through the week. And you can eat enough easily in two weekend days to like, quote unquote, undo the calorie deficit you accrued during the week. Yeah. So, So lots of components there. We're not even getting into today, I guess, like circadian rhythms, but some people could put an argument mm. to like consume these very large meals, potentially less nutritious foods, high energy density late at yes. night, how those are processed in the body compared to other times of day and so on. Yeah. So, but yeah, just to get to your point, I, I think it is, I think there is a lot of individual variability on how people respond. And I use that as kind of a point, like if people are interested, I'm like, try it, but try to be aware of like how your preferences change, how it is for you behaviorally. Are you eating back too many of these calories? If so, you might be putting yourself through this difficult program for no net benefit or even a net detriment. Yeah. Other people, they're like, no, I can just pretty much do the fast and then I go back to eating normally. And those are the types of people where these programs are more effective for, for weight loss and kind of as a long-term strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I mean, I do know that the, uh, the alcohol consumption in some of these, in, in some of these cases was, was considerable. So that's part of it yeah. too. And yeah, it doesn't help like either. Liquid, liquid calories and also just like, you know, it's the seven calories per gram and all that kind of thing. But Yep. You know, and, and, and personally, from, from like how, how does eating frequency impact your appetite? If I do like the 16-8, you know, I am ravenous at, at, at the end of that eight. Mm. Like it's really hard for me to like really keep that under wraps. And like, yeah, most people are, they're going for the caloric dense stuff. They're not going to go for the, the, the nutrient dense like salad. They're going to grab the pizza. They're going to, it's just way more, of course, it's just, it seems like, more appetizing to you, but your kind of ability to resist can, can be, you know, compromised. Yeah. So, but when I do the 24 hour fast, I don't experience that. So <laughs> that's just, interesting. Yeah, no, I don't like I, I, yeah, I'm ready to eat at the end of that, but it does not make my appetite go off the rails. Like, like a 16, eight might, but then like whenever I'd done 16, eight, this is just my own like internal feeling, how, how I compare the two protocols. I just never felt like I got deep enough into a fast to get any kind of physiological benefit. Like we mentioned Mm. earlier, I just almost needed that extra little, like the extra several hours to, to really get like deeper into fatty acid release and ketone production. I don't know. Those obviously things are happening. Yeah. I just never felt like I got those with the 16.8. So yeah, that's interesting on the timeline. And I'm sure it varies. We haven't gotten into this either, but you know what you ate last too. If your last Mm. meal starting the fast was like something small. Sure. You might enter the fasted state sooner. If this is an enormous feast, you might be in the postprandial yeah. state for a long time. And exactly. Starting. So That's a great that point. Aside, that is interesting because yeah. if your appetite was suppressed with the 24 hour, it does make you wonder about ketone production since ketone bodies can, 
you know, suppress yep. appetite. So yeah, super interesting stuff. All right. Well, awesome, Grant. Thank you so much for your time today. You know, if people want to follow you, look you up, where where can they go? Yeah, so I'd say I share updates about our research, kind of professional speaking, my own fitness journey, just random things on Instagram. So my handle there is just Grant underscore Tinsley underscore PhD. I also have a website that has more information about our research lab, some of my consulting activities, publications, and so on. And that's just my name, GrantTinsley.com. Um, so those would be the best places to find information about me. Other information, if you are a student in this area, our department here at Texas Tech has bachelor's and master's programs in kinesiology, as well as a PhD in exercise physiology. In our master's program, we have concentration in human performance, which is what I focus on. Even though we are a kinesiology department, I, I bring kind of a dose of nutrition yeah. to all of our all of our programs. Yeah. So if you're a student in that area, feel free to to check out our programs. It's Texas Tech University Department of Kinesiology and Sport Management. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, by the time this release, we will also have an episode up with Abby Smith Ryan. Oh, great. Uh, another great lab, another great academic program. So like if you're a student or if you're wanting to continue education, like my goal is to bring you good avenues for researching really interesting things with really great people who are doing awesome work. So we yeah. obviously all the links will be in the show notes. I will say, so word of warning here, if you don't follow Grant already and then you go follow Grant, you're going to get weight room envy because <laughs> he has like the greatest home setup weight room I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, that's kind. I'm I'm still improving the equipment, but I am, I'm fortunate. I live out in West Texas, so we have lots of space. We have a little yeah. over an acre of land. So yeah, we were able to build a building out there in the backyard for, for the weight room and the lawnmowers and all that stuff. Oh my, yeah. It's, do you have like, is it flags that are all kind of over the walls? Yes. Like tons of different yes. flags. Is there, is that like where you've been or like how, to, how did, what, what flags make the wall there? Yeah. So states I've lived in, universities I've studied at, some former students will send me flags uh, just things I like. So, yep. um, you know, whether it's like shows, like big, big map of Middle Earth from Lord of the Rings, like oh, anime, yes. the nerdy stuff. It's got, it kind of runs the full, the full gambit there. Yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, uh, you will get a little, a little envy there for his, his setup. So again, Grant, thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really happy you could come on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Corey. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.